I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. Terminator Dark Fate? Ugh. Oh, do we have to? We, we're gonna rehash this? No, or hash it? Uh, yeah, no, re- no rehashing. Yeah, we're not. I, there's a part of me. We could have this argument. We could just play out this argument in real time, whether or not we think we need to do a podcast of La Vista Baby on Terminator Dark Fate. Yeah, I think this is something we're not going to do, and I. This isn't about the the movie itself. I don't want to spoil the movie itself just in case we decide that we want to do it. But I think I can sum up my feelings with the Terminator franchise and having to do the sort of homework to do prep for an episode about another Terminator movie at this point (laughs) is, you know, at the end of the first Rocky movie, where Apollo Creed gets that big knockout of uppercut on um, on Rocky Balboa, just mm-hmm. knocks his ass to the ground. The Bill Conti score just goes nuts, <laughs> and Rocky is struggling. His his uh, manager Mickey is saying, "Stay down, stay down," and Apollo just goes around the rings with his arms in the air because he has just gone through hell fighting this guy who just will not stay down, who he has been hitting over and over and over and over again. And he's just tired. And then he turns around and Rocky is getting back up and you see it on his face and you see his arms just kind of slowly drop. (laughs) And there's this look on his face that thought, I thought I was finally fucking done. I thought I was out. And they pulled us back in. Yeah, right? <laughs> that's that's how I feel. I, I well, well, without getting into too much, as I, we saw this together, we always have serendipitously interesting times seeing movies together. It's like once a year. Within the first, like when the the title credits were rolling, I had a deep sense of regret that I didn't want to be there. That I would much rather have been in one of half a dozen other theaters in the same place watching a different movie, and. I, you just feel done. I, I feel I, like I've moved on from I this. I was done before it started. But I mean, when we have the specific podcast that we have, it's like knowing that not only do I need to watch this, which is not the hard part, it's that I essentially have to do homework now. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, I felt like I got all my credits. It felt like I turned it all in. And now it's like, this happened to me when I was going to community college where I took the wrong gym class. <laughs> and I was like, I thought I was fucking done. You know, I thought I was done. I thought I had the credits. And I was like, nope, you got to take one more. And it's just like, oh. there's that bit where it's just, you got that extra step. And I was just, you feel tired. You feel so tired in that moment. And I, I don't want to put this movie down, but it just, I feel like there's a point where a franchise should just slip away. And it should just die in its sleep. I mean, it, it's important to, it's the context is not just the lineage of the T- Terminator movies, which I think we care about the Terminator movies, at least the first and second ones. We care about the franchise insofar as 
They are big for Arnold's career, obviously. They are big in pop culture. They There's a lot of memes based off them. There's a lot of relevance, I guess, to yeah. the idea of a preventable apocalypse. I think that's a, that's a, that's a good story to be able to tell. Um, however, the in the context of what we do, Terminator is only like a very, very small part of Arnold's filmography, despite the fact that he seems to keep wanting to make them. And... Um, We've got uh, we've got a lot more Arnold movies to 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 do when we're going to end up. Some of them not so good, some of them great. Um, but Terminator is the rest of the Terminators are not one of them. The hard part is that there's a point where Terminator hits, and I think this is true of a lot of franchises, where it just goes, okay, let's just repeat this pattern over and over and over again. And I know that as we get into stuff like say Junior, or we yeah. get into stuff like you know uh, Raw Deal, or uh, collateral damage movies that we haven't done yet. Um, I know that it's not going to be exactly the same pattern, even though Arnold is sort of a thing and that people want to sort of gravitate towards certain tropes of Arnold, you know, catchphrases and violence, let's call it. Sure. Um, that those elements are going to be a part of it, but they're going to manifest in different ways in different genres with different looks that his character is going to be slightly different. It's probably mostly going to be him kind of being an older version of his character from Predator. Sure. Sure. You know, where. With Terminator, the problem is that he's been playing the Terminator 2 Terminator since right. 1991, and that we've played out the same plot. Okay, now what is the new iteration of of Terminator Monster come from the future to play out the exact same scenario where we ha- we're going to have a highway chase and then we're going to fight in a factory? And it's there's a point right. where right. you know I've just I've seen a better version of this because it hews to that formula so closely it can't help but demand comparisons, and they're always unflattering comparisons. I mean, let's put it this way. It's not unlike Roger Moore's Bond, where there is is definitely a point after which Roger Moore shouldn't be doing this, and I think Schwarzenegger has, he has gone past the point after which he should no longer be Terminator anymore, but still, they're still going because there's money to be made. The difference being that the formula of James Bond is, you know, is perfectly perfectly ripe to be episodic and to be rebooted every now and then and to have a new actor whereas i don't think anyone's going to be interested in when arnold schwarzenegger either kicks the bucket or is just literally too old to play the character yeah going to be interested in having you know jason momoa or i don't know insert whatever strongman popular actor is going to be in the year 2030 i don't think anyone's really interested in that i think it i think it dies when arnold dies i think the franchise dies when our generation just gets sick of it, finally, because right. we're not there yet. Apparently, well, not. Are are millennials and Gen Zers excited to see another Terminator movie? No, they would. There's no reason for them to go because I don't. It was the, the movies that are good in that series all came out way before they were born. And also the the uh, the draw to these movies were two actors that are in their sixties. Yeah, and two actors that maybe they played a part. In the, this, this, didn't they call that the best marigold hotel? This is like this is the sci-fi action equivalent of the best marigold hotel. You know, yeah, the one that you want to go to because you got to see your your actors, but they're all in their prime time of their lives. Yeah, the golden I, years. Yeah, I can see that. I just it's it's if it's not quite like that. And again, what was the golden years spinoff where they all lived in their retirement home together? That was Golden Palace. Yes, this is this Terminator, Terminator Dark I, Dark Fate is basically like the Golden Palace of the Terminator franchise. Well, we don't want to get too much, but. <laughs> Yeah, I just, oh. I guess I'm just tired and it's, I, 
I, I don't even want to get into the actual movie itself. No. Just, We'll you save know, that for a later date. Yeah. Oh, God, I don't... See, that's the thing is I have this bias. My bias is that I don't want to do it again, so I can't be trusted to be completely neutral in deciding whether this is enough of an Arnold movie to do an episode. Right. So I'm just... It's, there's an element of, you know, hey, should we do this thing? And it's like, yeah, but I'm fucking tired. <laughs> and that's that's that emotion is steering so much of this that I really... Because clearly we're not going to do an episode of Podcast La Vista Baby on Terminator Dark Fate until it exists on some kind of physical media. Right. Or is available streaming somewhere. Right. So that we can watch it and rewind it and look at it. But right now, in this moment, I just don't want to do it. There's there's another meta question that I have, which is the sort of post gubernatorial Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. And I've, we've done a few of them. We've done uh, three of them. I think um, we are kind of going along with the notion that they are somehow enough of Arnold Cannon to be included in a show that is a discussion about Arnold Cannon. And I, there is a, there's a nagging sense and this is some real inside inside baseball sort of stuff. I do have the nagging sense that with each each further Arnold Schwarzenegger movie that goes along, there'll be less and less of that precious sort of ethereal quintessential Arnold in it that will make it not as much of an Arnold movie to want to talk about. Yeah, he's going to have to become a different actor uh, to adapt to the fact that the prime of his life, which is a lot older than you think it is. And we've talked about this before, which is that he didn't really become famous until his early to mid thirties. Right. So, it looks like a special effect when you go back and watch Hercules in New York and see how young he looks in that. <laughs> uh, but we're so used to seeing Arnold in his 30s and 40s, the sort of the 80s and the 90s. That is the part of his life that you sort of visualize when you think of Arnold Schwarzenegger. But, you know, it feels like there's this decade where, you know, after 2003, Terminator 3 comes out. He is governor for a very long time. I think right. the first movie he does when he comes back is The Last Stand. And it feels That's like... 10 years later. Yeah, it's yeah. 10 years later in 2013. And it's like, you know, when you're watching Fellowship of the Ring and Bilbo gave up the <laughs> yeah. ring and you see him again in I Rivendell. Gonna, I was going to say that exact same thing. Yes. Yeah, where it's just like suddenly he's that much older and it's jarring. There was something kind of timeless about Arnold that he was almost 50 when he was in Terminator 3, and he still did basically a nude scene. Yeah. Walking around oh, naked once he's in the present. There's no nude Arnold in any movie after 2013, that's for sure. I, he's I, not even going to take his shirt off. I will say this, though. He is in remarkably good shape. Yeah, for a man. For, for a man in his, like, his 70s. And, and a guy who's had like two major heart surgeries as yeah. well. So, I mean, that's it's shocking how even in uh, Dark Fate, you can see him in like a t-shirt, and it's kind of shocking how good a shape he's, he's still in. But he, he's not capable of doing the physical stuff that was the cornerstone of his career anymore. You know, it's so interesting. I, so I, it kind of hurts in a way to see him age that much, because it's, like, it's not like when you watch George Burns, and George Burns was largely a guy who told jokes mm-hmm. i mean he was mm-hmm. it was about the sort of personality and the delivery and you can translate that to a much much older actor but arnold is a guy who is like picking up three guys at once and throwing them over a <laughs> railing to their death and is like picking up a gun that should be on a tripod and right. gunning down 50 guys and it just becomes harder to create that suspension of disbelief when he's this much older see and i thought that we had been to a point in 
where Arnold had a realization about his limitations and where you had movies that were like Maggie or movies that were like Aftermath, where they are a chance for him to sort of flex the uh, his acting muscles versus his actual muscles. Um, and as I don't think either of those two movies are great, um, but they were at least a point where I was thinking that he understands what his limitations are. And then after that, then you, you've got like, you have like sabotage. <laughs> and yeah. You're like, what the fuck yeah. is going on, Arnold? It's, there's a nostalgia thing. I guess thing. he's doing triplets too. So, I, so there's a possibility that you could see the sort of return of fish out of water, um, you know, fish out of water comedic Arnold. And that might work. I mean, I think he's, I think he's, he is a decent comic actor. I yeah, think he's I, a I decent comic actor. Yeah, I just, I... He needs a good supporting cast. He needs good comedic actors around him to make it work. Yeah. yeah. I just, it's, it's always a little bit harder watching the older ones than it is to watch the younger ones. The younger ones, which is weird because he's still older than us in some of the ones we call his younger ones. Right. <laughs> and it's sort of strange because he just seems... And this is something I think even my girlfriend Piper said. There is a timeless quality to him that he seems to not age, uh, apparently very much at all during yeah. the heyday of his career. Given that he's going into like almost fifty by the time he's still doing highly physical it, roles. I think it's I think it's end of days where you actually see that take place, and it's kind of a dual thing. I think it's for his his first heart surgery because that that movie took place after his first heart surgery and two that movie was the sort of the dawn of the CGI movie era mm-hmm. which kind of clashed with the type of movies that Arnold was known for making and so i think that's the that is the KT boundary for Arnold movies i think yeah cg also and i i'm not shitting on cg cg can be great right. I mean, it just has to i think cg has to be somewhat conservative uh, it shouldn't reach too far because when it starts reaching to the edges of technology, that's when it becomes fakey. But uh, CG offers an opportunity for people to be able to do things that physically they couldn't do practically. And sometimes, yeah, let's just say I'm really happy about the fact that there are not people getting their backs broken in car stunts because uh, you can do really, really good car explosions and car crashes with uh, With CG that you can't tell the difference. And uh, it's probably a good thing that we don't do that stunt anymore where we cover somebody in anti-fire gel (laughs) and set them ablaze and have them run by. Right. Because that's just, that's really insane. The fact that you could get anyone to agree to do that is nuts. And they were doing that all throughout the, the 80s. Um, whenever there was like an explosion of like a tanker truck, there'd be somebody (laughs) running by. Uh, That's crazy. It is crazy. That's crazy. Um, But yeah, I think that CG offers an opportunity for older actors to somehow stay invincible, but visually you can tell they, they can't run quite that way. And it just, it breaks disbelief just a little bit. And I think that that was the thing that, like the the very hard edge of being able to get away with this is probably Rocky Balboa, the last yeah. Rocky movie that had him as the lead character. Right. Which is that they had to create a lot of things in the movie uh, to give him a chance to appear as a viable opponent to a 20-year-old guy. <laughs> like having the 20-something guy break his hand very early on in the fight. Um, that's a kind of awareness that I'm glad that Stallone had there. And it seems kind of like it doesn't translate to Rambo, (laughs) but it translated to Rocky because it's, how's it weird that Rocky, especially when you get into the Creed movies really does seem to be aging. Yeah. He's vulnerable. Yeah. Because, because Rocky was always vulnerable and Rambo was never vulnerable. Well, emotionally vulnerable. Rocky became 
he was started vulnerable, became invulnerable, and then became vulnerable <laughs> again, starting with like Rocky Five, which is not a great movie, but um, it's just it's weird. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I feel like they're really. I we're this is not going to happen. We're never going to do it. But I feel like we've talked about the parallels between the competition between Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. We could almost almost do a whole podcast series about the action movies of Sylvester Stallone and have just as much to say, except the fact that one, I don't think we want to spend the time doing it, and two, I just actually don't think that so that if. In retrospect, I do not believe that in the competition between of sort of the box office and the fame competition between Arnold and Sylvester Stallone, I don't believe he won. I don't believe for a second that he won. Who's he? Sylvester Stallone. I don't. I, I don't think I don't, so either. I think I think Arnold won not just in raw box office numbers, but I think as far as household name and doing an impersonation of a voice and being able to translate the action movie persona into different genres i think arnold ended up winning even though i think he's a less has an actor with much less range i know we've we've talked about this and i don't want to announce it officially but we've talked about what do we do when we run out of arnold movies and we conclude suicide pod- yeah yes. <laughs> <laughs> we're just gonna we're gonna drink the uh the flavor aid in <laughs> in a vent in guyana but um i i think it, we think about it a lot and we toyed a bit with the idea of doing it with another actor, grabbing another actor and doing yeah. their entire filmography. But what we discovered pretty early on is that there's a lot of actors there's, that have stuff that we like. There's too many of them. Yeah. And they also have a lot of stuff we really just don't want to watch. <laughs> I mean, for all the stuff that we really like, for the most part, Arnold has more things that are enjoyable to watch than things that are not. Yeah. That, you can't say the same thing for Jean-Claude Van Damme, unfortunately. No, you can't. Yeah. You really can't. And Or if you want to do Seagal. Seagal it's oh, like, God. <laughs> if you really want to talk about the same thing over and over again. Um, <laughs> there are like a couple Seagal movies I like. And then the rest of them are all exactly the same. Like, I like, I actually like both of the Under Siege movies. Yeah, they're okay. They're they're goofy as shit. And I kind of, in the first one, I'm definitely on Gary Busey's side. <laughs> but there's something sort of interesting there where everyone else Wait, is Wait, I think Tommy of, Lee Jones is the bad guy in the first Under Siege. Oh, yeah, he's a bad guy, but you remember that uh, Gary Busey is the traitor. Oh, right. He's right. like the XO on the ship right. who... Uh, that, that turns on everybody and lets the, uh, Tommy Lee Jones and the bad guys in during that party. And, and uh, I forgot that Gary Busey was in that movie. So Gary Busey is the XO um, who... The no cap- one would ever let Gary Busey run a ship. But it, it's weird because you feel He ba- wouldn't pass the psyche valve. No, no, he wouldn't. But I feel bad for him in that movie because um, St- Steven Seagal in that movie is such a piece of shit. That he's insubordinate and crappy, and he gets away with it because the captain lets him get away with it. And as I'm always saying, is just like when when the XO is there, going, "No, you have to do this thing. These are the orders." And this guy just shits all over him in front of other people, undermining his authority. And Seagal's like, "Just go talk to the captain. Go talk to the captain." <laughs> and and he's just like he does. And then the captain will take this shitty insubordinate guy's side. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck this guy. If I, I'm going to team up with terrorists, and the first thing I'm going to do is kill this motherfucker who's made me miserable for probably a couple of years now. So I'm totally on Busey's side in that movie. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to tie with the terrorists, because at least the terrorists want to kill Steven Seagal. <laughs> 
But yeah, I mean, but again, uh, it's, it's hard to do those ones, I think. And I think we can talk about this a little bit. Sure. We actually uh, briefly ta- uh, talked about the idea of doing a Keanu Reeves podcast. Yeah. And uh, I think the working title was Woe, colon, <laughs> Keanu Reeves in Theory and Practice. Yes. <laughs> but Which will shelve, but I mean, there are, you know, there are a good solid 10, 12 possible episodes about doing a Keanu Reeves action movie yeah um that are are ripe for the plucking but I mean there's a lot of those movies that I don't want to dedicate a whole hour to I don't want to talk about like walk in the clouds and I don't no. want to talk about uh what is the watcher is that the one where he's a serial killer <laughs> Henry's crime yeah, yeah I just yeah, there's I a lot you're... I think there's like a handful there is, of there things. are a lot of them with Keanu unfortunately for every matrix and John Wick there's a lot of other things that I just really yeah. am not interested in yeah and that was the thing, is that Arnold is kind of special in that he carries a specific kind of tonality with him. Uh, it's like a hermit crab. The movie just kind of becomes Arnold's shell. Um, and I like that about Arnold. So um, there aren't a lot of other actors that we can do that. So we do have a project in mind. We've already talked about it. Uh, we're not going to announce it now. We're going to wait yeah. till we probably get to let's, the very end. Let's just say the wheels are in motion and yeah. and we, we won't leave you out in the cold when we finally do our final episode. I mean, in any event, we have plans. Yes. Plans are being laid. Speaking of the future. Um, the future. Yes, that's where you're going to spend the rest of your life. Uh, was it Criswell? Um, I read somewhere probably a couple of months ago, and it pops back into my head every so often. Apparently, Generation Z does not like Star Wars. I, I don't see how they couldn't like Star Wars. Well, they've been had to kind of force down their throat, but here, here's the thing. When I hear that news, I was like, oh, thank Christ. <laughs> the, um, and I've, I've said this before to you in off, off microphone, and Generation X, you know, the, those of us, um, basically people born between the mid-60s, probably mid to late 60s, and probably the early 80s, those of us, uh, we have done to popular culture what the baby boomers did to the economy, right. <laughs> which right. is that we have sunk our talons into it and refused to share any of it and demanded that we control it until the way the day we die. And that uh, uh, we demand that rather than just having moments where we go, okay, this isn't for me anymore. You're like, no, you're going to continue to be just for me. Um, Star Wars, the older I get, feels a bit more like us being unwilling to let go of a franchise that, you know, I think that the millennials like Star Wars as much as we do. They probably like parts of it that we don't like because they grew up with, say, the prequels as something from their childhood rather right, than right. something from our, you know, angry 20s. Um, I, that, isn't that, that's the era, but I mean, in your early 20s is that, especially if you like movies, are you the most insufferable during that part of your life? Oh, I think you're the most insufferable when you're a teenager, but I guess in, when you're in your 20s, you believe you're an adult, so I think you probably you probably give your opinion with the a bit of mock rage that There's is a lot not, of not justified. Judgmental snobbery. <laughs> right. I think you're kind of there. But anyways... Um, I don't know if Gen Zers really care. And there's a part of me that just goes, wow, if there's this huge chunk of pop culture that can just, everyone can age out of, um, then maybe with that there's a hole there that can be filled with something new. 
Uh, Mike, I, I I took the challenge that you took a couple years ago. Um, I've up now. It's now the middle of November. I've already watched more than three hundred and sixty-five movies this year. Oh wow! And uh, I can tell you that the future is not franchises owned by Disney. There is so much more for people to want for people of all ages. It, even if you are a twenty-something filmmaker who might have grown up on uh, who might have grown up on Star Wars, there is so many more stories to tell and so much more interesting than sort of the monoculture, sort of the narrow sort of Disney pipeline for uh, for types of movies. And I hope it dies. I mean, I hope that I really hope that they that the lesson that they learn from the diminishing returns of like after solo and rise of the skywalker is is oh wait it's not going to be this mega hit every single time and we really have to pull it back and just start making it for like just the us gen xers who apparently need to build a religion around it like i'm fine just put it over to the side they can keep making it forever it doesn't need to be everyone's favorite movie yeah i'm fine with that and i think it's it's also i think what we've really learned with star wars is that and this kind of reminds me of the Harry Potter craze of the late 90s and, and mid to the mid-aughts, which was that I worked at a bookstore for a very long time. I probably have worked my entire 20s and most of my 30s in bookstores. Yeah, how many J.K. Rowling's did you finger over that time, would you say? I, see, that I'm not even going <laughs> to uh, answer that question. Lots. But um, during that time that I worked there, I think the Harry Potter books hit American shores about the time that I started working at Borders – in oh. like 1998. You jumped conglomerates. I did. I you worked went for Borders and Barnes and Noble. I worked for Borders, Barnes and Noble and Half Price Books. Wow. So, I'm I'm trying to get a bingo. <laughs> but when I I started working for Borders probably in the fall of 1998 and that kind of continued. I worked there for about 2 years. So, I got that first uh Harry Potter Christmas. Oh. Um that is something that, that book people have been trying to manufacture for a very long time, that there was a craze. I don't think people really understand how big Harry Potter was, that people were reading books. I mean, and they were selling like crazy. It was the it was this craze to try to get this book that we could not keep on the shelves, that any copy we had would immediately go on hold for somebody because we had that many people in line asking for it. That's amazing. So, I mean, the demand was insane. You could do midnight release parties with a YA novel right. that would draw people of all ages. It wasn't... This is the thing with like the Twilight crowd is the Twilight crowd is kind of like the price is right when they were at a height where the price is right. If you watch it is all college kids and the elderly who are in the crowd. So there's this huge gap of ages between the, the audience for this thing. So there's people that are retired and there's people who probably have a lot of free time because they're in school. So they're like, hey, I'm going to sit in on the price is right. And occasionally get to play. Uh, Twilight was the same, where you had uh, teens and tweens, and then you had women in their 40s and 50s. But there was no women in their 30s and 20s. Right, right. So it was really strange to see that kind of age gap, but it was so specific. Harry Potter didn't have that age gap. Harry Potter was literally everybody. Everybody liked Harry Potter. Men, women, old, young, all ages, races, economic backgrounds, sexual orientations. Everybody likes Harry Potter. and um, they have desperately, desperately 
tried to find another book that could be that popular. They have been trying so hard to find another one like that. So they kind of try to force something like Aragon or uh, The Hunger Games. Percy or Jackson. Percy Jackson. Yeah. Um, the upside of this is that a lot of things... Um, Many of them kind of good uh, got published because of writing in the wake of Harry Potter. YA fiction is a much bigger deal. People understand how much of a bigger deal it is, both um, both from a money standpoint, but also critically. They treat this stuff a lot more seriously than they did maybe 20 years ago. And that's all good. That's all good. It gets more people reading. But the desperation that I clearly felt working at, at Barnes and Noble and at, at Borders to try to have lightning strike twice. And this time we get to choose it. That's kind of how star Wars kind of feels like we're so mm, desperate to make yeah. it as big as, as it was when, you know, we can't, we can't recreate how it felt to watch star Wars as a kid, as hard as we try. And we don't need to, because we still have the Star Wars we watched as a kid, and we still have all the memories that we watched it as a kid. And you know what? I think that we have learned that Star Wars is just a movie that is probably best when you space them apart a little bit more, and in between trilogies, you take a break for a little while, so that by the time you start making them again, it feels like an event. Right. It feels like, oh, wow, Star Wars is back. But when you have the movies coming out literally every year, I think we've kind of learned that there's a, a limited appetite for them. I mean, there is the... I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think there is the potential for um, the Mandalorian looks promising, but who knows how well it'll translate to being, you know, six or seven hour long episodes on a streaming platform. We don't know. And and, and like I said, may, maybe if that is the fate for what Star Wars becomes, yeah. that's fine. Because it, it joins the the longest of long tales of just like thousands upon thousands of things you can watch in the streaming verse. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. It doesn't need to be the thing that defines your life and that you want to harass people on the internet because it doesn't turn out the way you want it to. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways they were trying to make star Wars into the MCU. Yeah. And yeah. The of MCU course. is like I was talking about before that was, it's Harry Potter. It's this thing that somehow is, is building and uh, not losing an audience, it manages to keep it that you can keep shoveling it out and people will continue to love it. And there's this desperate need to sort of create it again. Well, let's do it with Star Wars or do it with DC or do it with, you know, let's create our version of that. And for some reason, it never really takes. They tried to do that with the universal monsters, with the dark universe. Right. Which made it a really bad idea to put that dark universe tag in front of a movie <laughs> where it was the only one that had that. Um <laughs> But there's this desperate need. When I see a lot of that stuff, all I all I feel in my head is over the years, probably a good five years of Barnes and Noble adopting a uh, a fantasy series for teens and pushing it so fucking hard because we really want to recreate the phenomenon of a thing that can't be repeated. Mm-hmm. And the MCU is still kind of there. I don't know how long it'll last, but we know it won't last forever. Right. And well, and the important part is is that maybe for every medium, it happens once. Yeah, you're not going to get it again, right? and it's okay as, for as it to as much end. as you can retry to make something like a Star Wars. Perhaps it can only ever happen once. Yeah, we live in a world right now where you can make three or maybe even four Marvel movies a year, 
and people will still go see them, that's not going to last forever. But no. you also can't translate that same success to any franchise, right. even Star Wars, which is one of the biggest pop culture things ever. And when I was thinking about the Gen Z doesn't like Star Wars, it means that maybe Star Wars can have something that other franchises don't, which is you can choose an ending for it. We had one yep. before yep. with Return of the Jedi. It was kind of an interesting moment because George Lucas could have decided to do more of those movies, but he didn't. And, you know, he stopped. He could have kept making more of them in the 90s, but he didn't. He kind of handed the future of these characters over to people who wrote novels and comic books. Right. And um, then he went back and did some prequels, and then he felt like he was done. He felt like he was really done after how much people raked him over the coals. Um, I did not. I do not like the Star Wars prequels. I don't... I look back on the sort of anger that even I threw out at those things and just go, you know, there is some real awful shit in the world. And it's not bad to be upset about fiction because we get upset about it. It's our fucking, you know, unpaid job. (laughs) But I don't like getting angry at things. And this is something we've talked about with episodes of of anything. Like we did the episode on sabotage a while ago. Mm Mm-hmm. And we also, a couple months before that, did an episode on Total Recall. Both of those are are movies that got a really strong emotional reaction that with Total Recall, it was a love fest. And with Sabotage, it was just us shitting all over it. And it was very visceral. And it, it does feel cathartic to do have that kind of angry, negative reaction to something and just pour your hate out onto it. But it's exhausting. Yeah, and you and you want to be sparing with that. And I feel like the the difference now is is that every release of these major tent poles becomes this sort of brigade event for people to you know the two minutes of hate sort yeah. of thing from and and we don't need that. There's like I said, there's if if I can if I can watch like 400 movies this year and have came up with probably a good 40 or 50 that are gonna I I can guarantee you are gonna be more interesting to watch than Rise of the Skywalker. Um, it just means you should go out and try more. Yeah. And maybe that's the maybe that's the 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 thing here is that never have we had more options at our fingertips to be able to go if we wanted to actually go out and explore. And uh, we don't want to because it's so easy that Disney just delivers it right to our doorstep. You yeah. Know? And, and, and it doesn't take that much. It yeah. doesn't take that much. You don't have to drive to another town. I, I want to hit you at the point where if something just makes you unhappy, you don't have to watch it. Yeah. I wouldn't. like if, For instance, if we weren't doing a totality of Arnold's filmography podcast, we never would have done an episode on Sabotage. No. Nope. It never would have come up because it's not fun. <laughs> um, one of the things we, we talked about with the successor to Podcast de La Vista Baby is we want to do something where every episode can be fun. Yeah. So we've already kind of decided on that. We're not going to announce it now. We'll announce it near the end of, of Arnold. But the the element of, and this is something that, you know, as any kind of pop culture discussion thing, I'm not going to call us critics because we're not really academic. We both went to film school, but yeah, we're not I mean, going to no. approach it in that sort of academic way that someone like a Lindsay Ellis will. I don't no. have that sort of credentials, and I'm just going to react to it as somebody who likes stories. Yeah, just experiential more than anything else. And the the most important part is I don't think we, at least with Arnold, we're not drawing 
um, like a huge arc. We're not trying to synthesize the through line for Arnold's sort of career as an actor. We're just sort of taking them as they come. Yeah. And that's, I think that's more interesting. And it's probably more interesting for the audience. Yeah, and I think maybe at the end of it, we can, we can discuss about what we've learned from the experience. <laughs> um, I think that's important to have a summation. Professor but, Arnold. What yeah. We life can, lessons from Professor we, Arnold. We can, we can go through it because a lot of this stuff we haven't seen before. But one thing I never want to do, and it was something that I think was a trend on the internet for probably about 10 years, and I think it's kind of gone out, but the performative anger that this movie... Snarky take. Yeah, yeah where you don't... It's not even criticism because criticism... Involves your own opinion, but if you're putting on a persona to get angry with anger that you don't actually feel because you're performatively tearing something apart in a thing that you, in a way that you don't feel, it's dishonest. Right. So it's not criticism, but it's sort of this, this, um, performance. And I've never wanted to do that on our show. I don't want to ever air an opinion that I don't feel. I don't Agreed. want to be angry about this movie did not kick my dog. <laughs> and I've never liked that. Um, I mean, I think we all went through our 20s and that stuff is a lot more attractive to you when you're in your 20s when you want to feel kind of superior to stuff. Sure. Maybe it's the fault of I. I'm. I, this is going out on a limb here. Maybe it's the fault of MST3K. Where oh, some, I wouldn't blame where, them. No, well, here's the thing. I, I don't blame them. I would blame the audience for people who 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 believe wrongly, who they have a misapprehension that the joy of watching a bad movie with comment is the same as trying to tear a middling or bad movie apart by being above it and snarky and snide. Yeah, I, the, the goal is the goal of criticism isn't to destroy things or say that they're bad. Um, some great criticism comes from loving things. I think. Mm-hmm. I think it's about it's about looking at a piece of culture analytically, talking about what it is, what it's trying to do, how successful it is at trying to do that stuff, things that it accidentally did that it didn't intend right. to do, right. and then talking about whether it's worth your time. It's somebody who thinks a lot about this stuff, doing a lot of legwork and letting you decide if you want to see this stuff or if you have seen this stuff to think about it on maybe a deeper level. Sure. That's yeah. why I don't necessarily think of us as critics, though I think sometimes we we play in that that pond a little bit. I I hopefully would I would hope that our role is more of the recommendation engine but also the recommendation engine with some thoughtfulness behind it yeah a little with a little more with a little, a little more flushed out yeah that's that's what i want to do i yeah. again i we're not doing this with uh, an academic take because we're not qualified to no but at the same time <laughs> no. I, we're we're not playing characters that act like the world uh is being destroyed by you know franchise cinema i you know i don't to the degree to which i get angry at that and i can actually give martin scorsese um a sense that he's actually right about some of this which is that it does crowd out other movies that i want to see that it's harder to see some movies in the theater that i want to go see that i make an effort to go see but they don't play for very long and you sometimes have to use some effort to find them playing in the cinema it's true and that's the part of it that does bug me with marvel is that i enjoy marvel movies i just want to be able to go to the movie theater and have a greater 
uh, you know, cinematic palette for what I can eat. Absolutely. I, I want, I want more variety. I want big movies. I want small movies. I don't want things to only be blockbusters. No, I think to be fair to him, I don't think he's saying Marvel movies are bad. I think he's saying that they're not doing the things that the sort of movies that he loves are doing. And he's, it's taking up a lot of the oxygen. This is true. Um, I don't think it's, I don't think it's an okay boomer opportunity. (laughs) I think it's, it's a question that I want young filmmakers to also make things that are challenging and interesting that don't have to be for $150 million. Agreed. Agreed. So, yeah, I just, you know, sometimes when I like, I want to go see Jojo Rabbit and I don't know if I can find a theater that's playing. It. Yeah. And that's a movie that was directed by the guy Taika Waititi who did Thor Ragnarok, yep. which was a huge movie. And it, and I'm also kind of hoping that, you know, when Knives Out by Ryan Johnson, who made a Star Wars movie, comes out, that it'll be in enough theaters that I can see it and it won't just be there for a week. And if I have a cold or something or the flu that week, then I miss it. <laughs> I don't I don't want to have to use this much effort just to go to see a movie. It, it, well, and perhaps the biggest that's that is the single biggest worry that justified worry of of uh, Scorsese is not about whether or not it'll be available. Certainly these will all be available in some means, digital, digital streaming on Blu-ray or whatnot that you'll be able to order from your bath, you know, from their bathtub if you want to. It's a question of whether or not you can go experience it in a cinema. And that's, that's what's, that is what is precious and that's what's in danger. I yeah. Think. Yeah. And I, yeah. I want to see that. I want to, and that's the thing that kind of gets me a little bit is that um, even just 20 years ago, I think that we had a probably more, varied palette for the types of movies that people saw one is i think it was a lot cheaper to go to the movies this is true comparatively than it is now Man, when i go through the grocery store and it's a franchise national franchise grocery store um and i see uh, fast fast and furious hobbs and shaw and it's like the cost of buying the blu-ray is less than it would have cost to buy two tickets to go see that movie on opening night and i'm like i it's it is hard to justify the costs just the expense of people going to pay for a movie in a movie theater it's it's crazy and there's a limited number of showings there's a limited number of screens and it becomes harder to compete with these big budget blockbusters and i like big budget blockbusters i enjoyed hobbs and shaw but it's weird where hobbs and shaw seems kind of quaint compared to the scale of the mcu <laughs> and we're talking about fast and furious fast and furious is not subtle compared to anything. No. <laughs> so, you know, it's 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 weird that I, you know, where something like say The Sixth Sense was a massive hit in like 1999 and something like even really strange like The Blair Witch Project. Oh, right. Can you yeah. imagine The Blair Witch Project now being the massive hit that it was then where everyone you knew had seen it? You know, even, even Get Out, which is the equivalent of a, a, a um, an independent movie that kind of goes critically big, a lot of people still haven't seen it, where I think in the 90s, I think everyone would have seen it. And it, it bugs me a little bit because when you have these movies that just get more and more expensive, going to the movies costs with multiple people is like 50 fucking dollars. You're going to pick it. You're going to go like, okay, I can only see so many. So a lot of times you're going to go with the familiar blockbuster. So it it makes me a little sad that one, everything is much more expensive. And two, um, everything is kind of getting crowded out by a well, lot of similar things. I like those well, similar well, things. But- more risk averse. I mean, it's that the, the problem is that it's more risk averse and, and risk in art is what makes art, you yeah. know, is what makes it interesting. Like I just saw uh, with Piper, we went and saw The Lighthouse. 
Oh yeah, Robert and Eggers. Robert Eggers. Yeah. yeah, I, I. The weird thing is, I didn't know how I felt about it when I watched it, but I think the more I think about it, the more I like that movie. It it operates on a crazy nightmare logic. It also makes you really appreciate um, Robert Pattinson. Mm-hmm. Uh, Piper has said a number of times how much she liked his Boston accent in that movie because it's really good. <laughs> but it also makes you wonder why have we wasted so much time before allowing um, Willem Dafoe to do a pirate voice? Because <laughs> it feels like he was born to play a version of this character forever. You mean he wasn't one of the villains in one of the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movies? No. I would imagine he would be one of those actors who they would, the producers would be like, we got to get Willem Dafoe in here. We got to get Willem Dafoe. He just his voice. I love Willem Dafoe. Yeah. Like, that dude has a face that was made to be put on screen. <laughs> um, the fact that he has never played the Joker kind of makes me sad. But, I mean, I guess he played the he played the, go- the, the Green, Green Goblin. Goblin, which is, I, you're close to it. He's kind of a madman who has a smile on his face. Oh, yeah. He does play he's a supervillain. I think he's close. The, the big mistake of the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie was covering uh, Willem Dafoe's oh, yeah. face. He already has the perfect face. He has for a perfect villain. face for a... <laughs> <laughs> he's great. That's why they keep bringing him back as a ghost in those sequels. Because it's like, how can you give up uh, Willem Dafoe's ghost screaming at you for vengeance? I mean... Jesus, that's great. I, how can you not want that in your movie? Um, but yeah, also, and this is highly underrated about the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, the casting of um, James Franco as Willem Dafoe's son is fucking inspired. <laughs> that is like that is like Niles and Frazier level good casting. <laughs> Where I watched those movies again a while ago, and I'm like, holy, you know, when we were getting ready for the Spider-Man panel, yeah, and I'm like, yeah. Holy shit, that's good casting. I never would have thought that, but they've got such a similar face. They do, and James Franco can be has a very smug, punchable face too. Yeah, you, you kind of you kind of think that you like him at first, and then you think you might want to. And then pretty soon he's tying you up in barbed wire and threatening to stab you with a sacrificial <laughs> dagger because he blames you for killing his dad. <laughs> Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. truth about Peter. Be strong, Harry. Avenge me. Avenge me! No! <laughs>